The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Lots of movies between now and seven o'clock with Brian Lloyd from entertainment.ie and Ro McDermott, movies editor of Hot Press. And we're going to, in the first section, look at the new releases that'll be available in cinemas from Stephen's Day onwards. And let's start, Ro, with Priscilla, because this is the story of Priscilla Presley coming just a couple of years after a big Elvis movie. Yeah, and could not be more different in tone and focus because the Elvis that we saw from Baz Luhrmann was such a whirling dervish, this kinetic performance of music and dance and routines and it was so focused on Elvis. And this in Sofia Coppola's kind of innate style is very quiet, it's meditative, it's so about Priscilla herself. It's based on Priscilla's 1985 memoir Elvis and Me and it shows uh, Priscilla Presley uh, meeting Elvis when she was 14 in West Germany. Which was something, I think Brian, that was glossed over wasn't it in very, the Elvis movie yeah yeah very very much and that's really the focus of this film is is that Priscilla was basically this teenage girl who basically became enamoured by Elvis and then in turn he begins to kind of control and effectively dominate her in every single way like he determines what kind of makeup she should wear how high her hair should be you know she can't leave Graceland and all the rest of it and it really kind of what I found interesting about it was was that as much as it was about kind of sort of coercive control, for lack of a better, I guess, descriptor, it also kind of captured how enamoured she was with him, how she willingly went along with it, which I thought was interesting. Well, I think because you're playing this dynamic that she's a teenager and the biggest pop star in the world yeah. interested in her. So the first half of the film is about her waiting for him because he goes off for two years yeah. and is in the military. And it kind of feels very Roland Barthes, the idea of love is waiting and longing for something. You see she can't focus on anything. Something that is so fascinating about the movie is that it's about an hour, 52 minutes. It's not until about an hour and 42 minutes in where there is a 30 second conversation and is the first conversation we see Priscilla have that is not with Elvis or about Elvis because she's just always on her own or her life is revolving around his schedule, what he wants from her. I think Sofia Coppola has always been brilliant at two things. She's very good at looking at women who have privilege without power and she's really good at looking at isolation and loneliness. So you think of Lost in Translation, you think of the virgin suicides, um, you think of these girls who are feeling alienated from everyone around them and misunderstood and nobody is interested in Priscilla as a person. There's never a conversation where she talks about her interests, her passions, her friends and so she just captured that isolation but in these beautiful surroundings of Graceland. Let's hear a clip. In this clip Priscilla played by who's the actress? Uh, Kylie Spenny. Okay, in meeting Elvis played by Jacob Elordi for the first time. Yeah, we both understand. No, you didn't say something. Hey, hey, boy. Good to see you. Good to see you. Uh, Elvis, this is Priscilla Bullio. Uh, I'm going to go thank you. Hey. Oh, you like to have a seat? <clears throat> so what are you doing over here? My dad's stationed in uh, Wiesbaden. Where are you come from? Austin, Texas. Austin. Mm. You like it here? It's okay. <laughs> what, are, what are you, about a, a junior or a senior in high school? Ninth. Ninth. Ninth what? Grade. Ninth grade. <laughs> You're just a baby. Thanks. Oh, Seems a little grass spunk. Hey, hey. I'll, I'll be right back. Come on, man, let's take it. Come on. Come on, Elvis. <laughs> 
I thought it was quite creepy because quite clearly kind of she's a, a girl yeah. with an adult man. Yeah, and even the actor Kylie Spenny is, she's always, the way that kind of Sofia Coppola shoots it is very, it's a very kind of interesting way because it almost feels like every door that she walks through is way bigger than her. Everything is kind of almost at her eye level. So like she can't kind of like see over a table or see over a car. You get this sense that the world around her is too big for her. And and any time that Elvis comes into it, he just dominates the screen. And compared to what Austin Butler did and Jacob Elordi did, like I think Jacob Elordi has a much, I, I feel like he had a much stronger grasp on the character because one, he looked really, really like him and he had the voice down pat. But also as well, I think he kind of got the sort of, I guess, the uncertainty that Elvis had, that a lot of it was kind of puffery, that behind closed doors he was a very, very... Uh, unsure of himself personally. Like he asks her at one point, like, what are they all listening to at home? And she says, oh, well, you. And he doesn't even seem to accept that. Like, you know. Okay, is it worth saying? I think absolutely. Yeah. I think it's really, really interesting. I also think Elvis's songs are not in the movie, reportedly because of a rights issue that Sophie Coppola couldn't get that. But I actually think it works beautifully because without the Elvis songs, we focus on him as a person and we focus on him as a character in the story. Really interesting. Also so sumptuous and beautiful to look at, but with this really melancholic tone. Gorgeous. Brian, what about Ferrari? Yeah, so this is the uh, biopic of Enzo Ferrari. It's directed by Michael Mann. People would know him, obviously, from Heat, Last Mohicans, the Ali biopic with Will Smith. Um, it's written by Troy Kennedy Martin. And people would remember him from Touch um, Edge of Darkness, which was this great BBC TV series in the 80s uh, with Bob Peck. Um, what's going on here, it's, it's effectively uh, Ferrari was on its knees. The company was basically about to go bankrupt. Uh, there was a last-ditch effort to kind of secure financing either from Ford or from uh, Gino Agnelli uh, Fiat. And the only way that they were going to be able to kind of secure funding and kind of restore Ferrari to its uh, to its luster was by winning this race called the Mille Mile, which was essentially like this cross-country race in Italy between, you know, Maserati and Ferrari and Porsche and all the rest of it and Lamborghini. <clears throat> and it's essentially him his relationship with his wife, Penelope Cruz, and then his mistress played by um, Shailene Woodley. And then on top of that as well, the kind of, I guess, like the, how much of a micromanager he was, how kind of like, he just seemed to micromanage every single detail of his cars, which is something that Michael Mann is famous for, micromanaging his actors and everything. Let's hear a clip which features Adam Driver and Penelope Cruz as Enzo and Laura Ferrari. You were supposed to save him! You blame me for his death? Yes! Yes, because you promised me he wouldn't die! Everything. I did everything. Tables showing what calories he could eat. What went in, what came out. I grafted degrees of albuminuria, the degrees of esotemia. Diuresis. I know more about nephritis and dystrophy than cars. Yes, I blame you, I blame you. Because you let him die. The father deluded himself. The great engineer. I will restore my son to health. Swiss doctors, Italian doctors, bullshit. I could not. I did not. Because you were so consoled at Castelvetro, you lost your attention. You had another boy growing stronger while Dino was getting weaker. What goes on in your mind? He got sick. Dystrophy. Kidneys. It destroyed him. It destroyed us. What do you care? Huh? You have another son. You have another wife. She's not my wife. But he is my son. 
Okay, is Adam Driver doing a single transferable Italian character from House of Gucci? No, not at all. And in fact, to be honest, like that's the most animated he gets in the movie. Most of the time, like you see him kind of stalking around the factory floor in Ferrari and like leaning over his drivers and like having these really intense conversations with them about like you know how only two things can occupy one one part in space, and that you know. The idea is that, like, we as, you know, as drivers, are you a driver or are you a competitor and all this kind of stuff? Um, That's probably, like I said, that's the most animated he is. Like, it actually reminded me a lot more of Robert De Niro's performance in Heat, this idea of a person that is just completely single-minded to the detriment of every other relationship in his his life, which has, again, been a recurring theme in Michael Mann's movies. Like, you look at Collateral. Is it worth seeing? I think so. I really enjoyed it, yeah. I really did enjoy it. What's the boy in the heron? This is Hayao Miyazaki from Studio Ghibli and I think everybody thought that he had retired after uh, 2013's The Wind Rises which was beautiful but he obviously found out that he had... So it's an animation? Yes, it's animation beautifully animated by Studio Ghibli and obviously found out that he had much more to say about grief and his family and his artistry and this really feels like a beautiful swan song to a very long and illustrious career and it feels very autobiographical in a fantastical way because it's about a boy called Mahito Maki uh, and it's he's 12 years old and his mother dies in a hospital in Tokyo in a fire and he's sent to the countryside to live with essentially his new mother which is his late mother's sister who looks exactly like her and is now pregnant and this poor 12 year old boy is trying to grapple with all these feelings of grief and anger um, when he's approached by a heron and a heron says your mother is not dead and you have to come with me to find her and suddenly the second half of the film enters this kind of Alice in Wonderland space where he's going through these fantastical worlds but they're beautiful and stunning and striking and surreal and they're also confusing and disorienting and jarring and he's grappling with all of these feelings and deciding do I want to live in this fantasy world or do I want to return to the real world so it feels like a story about a child navigating really big emotions but it also feels like a really big meditation on life from this director who has been working and providing such artistry for so many years um, and Maizaki his father built planes that were used for bombings during World War II and his mother died when he was very young so it feels like he's really working through a lot of familial trauma there and his own relationship with his art as well um, but it's it's so beautiful and meditative. I will say it's it's quite confusing at times yeah. and I already want to watch it again. I don't think it's one for kids necessarily, but I think adults will find so much richness in it. It's quite an emotionally mature, complex, beautiful story. That's The Boy and The Heron. Okay, competition winners. I want to give you the Sheen Falls winner is Mick Riley. The winner of the Monster Rugby tickets is Ger Greeny. And we also had a winner of the signed Monster jersey and ball and that's Monday's winner, Claire O'Brien. Rob McDermott, Brian Lloyd are staying with us and we will talk about what you can watch on TV and streaming services movie-wise over the Christmas when we come back. Rob McDermott and Brian Lloyd, you've both given me long lists of things to watch on TV and streaming and I'm not sure we've loads of time to get through them. So give us your best Rose, start with you. What would you really recommend? I'm going to say, if you haven't seen this, this is one of my favourite movies of all time. It's on Christmas Day. It's Arrival and it's on film four at a quarter past 11. So the world is basically thrown into chaos and 12 alien spaceships descend on different parts of the universe. And Amy Adams plays a bereaved linguist and she is brought in to figure out a way, can we communicate with these aliens? Which sounds very sci-fi and very ridiculous, but it's actually this really quiet, intelligent, emotional story about the nature of grief, the nature 
nature of time, the power of language and the need for people to connect even across conflicts, across uh, these huge governmental situations, because she's not only navigating how do we communicate things, what does it mean to communicate in the first place, but also they're navigating this idea that the alien spaceships have descended and governments aren't communicating with each other and the danger this puts us in. So it's kind of about international relations, but it's also such a deeply emotional, personal story and it's disgusting that Amy Adams didn't win the Oscar for this. Okay, what's your first pick, Brian? Uh, the Taken Appell on 1, 2, 3 and this is on... This is Prime, the original, is the it? The original one, yes. The original on one. On Prime Video. On Prime Video, yeah, with Martin Lando and Robert Shaw and Martin Balsam and Hector Elizondo. So basically what's just going on is, is that a subway train is hijacked by four armed men they plan to kill one hostage. Well, actually, we have a clip. Oh, do we? Really? We do, with oh, yeah. Robert Shaw in it, Mr. Blue. Now then, you'll all remain seated. Anybody who tries to rise is going to get shot. <laughs> Move up a bit, Mr. Doyle. Now, ladies and gentlemen, you see this gun? Fires 750 rounds of 9mm ammunition per minute. In other words, if all of you simultaneously were to rush me, not a single one of you would get any closer than you are right now. Hey, Mom, is those field guns? I do hope I have made myself understood. That's pretty much the entire plot of the film. They basically hold these people hostage while Martin Lando negotiates with them to try to get them out. This is on my top 10 of all-time favourite movies. I absolutely love it. It's 90 minutes. The score uh, from David Shire, it's this really big, bassy, jazz fusion soundtrack. New York looks like an absolute dump. <laughs> Everyone has this really dark, cynical sense of humour. It's so, it's so quotable. Quentin Tarantino like basically based Reservoir Dogs, the whole colour-coded thing, off of this. He cites it one of his best movies. I've, I've only ever seen it um, I had to order the DVD from the US to get it because I'd never see it on TV. I never saw it anywhere. So the fact that Prime Video have it now means I'm telling everybody to go see it. Ro, what's your pick? Um, I will say um, Meet Me in St. Louis is one of my favourite Christmas films and that was on today and is apparently not on again over the Christmas and I'm disgusted. But a film that I loved watching was the 1996 version of Little Women which had uh, Winona Ryder. But what's on this year is the new version made by Greta Gerwig a few years ago and of course based on Louisa May Alcott's novel and I think it's such a gorgeous adaptation and a lot of it takes place around Christmas time, so it feels very seasonal. But it stars Saoirse Ronan as Joe. She's one of four sisters. And I think it's such a beautiful adaptation because it moves back and forth in time, which works really well. Uh, but I also think they developed the character of Amy, played by Florence Hugh, in this really beautiful, nuanced way. And so I just think it feels like this gorgeous, warm hug of a movie that's also quite emotionally mature. <coughs> and it's just such a great update of a classic that people, I think, were questioning, going, do we need this? And I think it's just absolutely stunning. What's your next one, Brian? Uh, Trade and Play. It's on Stephen's ah. Day, film four, quarter past 11. I love it, Trading Places. It's one of those movies that, it, it, yes, there are elements of it that are not exactly politically correct. Hmm. I can freely admit that. But I think Eddie Murphy is at his best. Dan Aykroyd as well. It's an unusual combination. Um, the two brothers as well. Like, I mean, they're just so, like, absolutely evil and terrible. Jamie Lee Curtis, fantastic. Dan O'Melliot as well, like a, a really kind of, you know, he obviously did the Ealing comedies through yeah. the 40s and 50s or whatever, and he's kind of channeling that there as well. And John Landis, I think John Landis, you know, whatever you want to say about his controversies later in life, but I think his comedies like this and Blues Brothers and all the rest of it, you can see that he why he was such an in-demand director in the 80s. Well, what's your next pick? 
So a little bit unusual. So maybe if you have small kids and you're getting ready for a kind of week of Christmas movies and kids movies and you want to break for that on Christmas Eve, is searching for Sugarman on Sky Documentaries at 9pm, which is a documentary following two fans in search of their musical idol. And it's about this American singer, Rodriguez, who enjoyed this very brief recording career in the 1970s before fading in obscurity. But his music, which was a mix of kind of Bob Dylan and Cat Stevens, felt very politically conscious. It felt very anti-authoritarian. And it was really embraced by the people of South Africa. He used it in anti-apartheid protests. But then they knew nothing about him. There were rumours of his death. So it's about their, these two fans trying to track him down. Very twisty, very unusual. That's the one that both of you have. So yeah. let's hear a clip from it. It's a bit of a mystery how the first copy of Cold Fact came to South Africa. But to us, it was one of the most famous records of all time. He was the soundtrack to our lives. Bigger than Elvis. Much bigger than Rolling Stones. Any revolution needs an answer. The message it had was be anti-establishment. The first opposition to apartheid, they were influenced by Rodriguez. Nobody knew anything about him. He was a mystery. And we found out that he had committed suicide. The story differs a lot, and a lot of people have different versions of the story. He set himself a light on stage. He reached down and pulled up a gun and pulled the trigger. I thought it'd make a good story, find out how Rodriguez died. So we started looking quite deeply at the lyrics. And one day, just by accident, I found it. What I thought was the end of story was actually just the beginning, and the best part was still to come. Yeah, and it's interesting because, like, when you li- when you watch the documentary, it's one of those things that, like, it was clearly before the internet, before everyone could just open up Wikipedia or IMDb or whatever and know everything there is to know about an actor or a singer. So it really does kind of capture that era of, I, I suppose, like, kind of apocryphal information. You know, that sort of okay. everyone heard something about it, but it's terrific. I won the Oscar as well. The mm. year it was released. So. Your next choice. Uh, my next choice is Maestro. This is on Netflix. Oh, yeah, um, there's Bradley Cooper movie. The Bradley Cooper movie, yeah. I know, I think we talked Actually, about Actually, that's, yeah, that's one definitely going to watch. Yeah, yes. no, it's really, really good. Like Leonard Bernstein, it's all about his life and times. Not necessarily about his, you know, his career and his politics and all the rest of it, but more about his relationships with men, the fact that his wife effectively essentially allowed it and, and all the rest of it and then Carrie Mulligan as well how she dealt with it her performance in it is incredible I think she's going to win Best Actress at the Oscars Roll uh, I think this was our both of our movies of the year Past Lives is streaming on Apple TV so if you didn't get to see it in the cinema it is out now and it's such a beautiful story of lost love and the idea of looking at a life as a series of choices and the sacrifices you make when you make one choice and grieving them but it's about a young woman who uh, moves from Korea to the States and it's about her sense of identity and how a boy that she loved when she was 12 kind of moves in and out of her life and how he represents this part of her that she has lost you know she doesn't speak Korean with people she doesn't feel completely immersed uh, in either Korea or America and so when she meets a, you know, an American guy and falls for him it's this kind of sense of who am I with these different men and who could I have been and it's so beautiful We've only got two minutes Brian what are you guys? Um, I'll go for Are You There God It's Me Margaret this is on Prime Video um, Judy Bloom obviously didn't have much kind of cu- cultural impact in Ireland and in Europe generally but in the US Wasn't allowed so, to <laughs> Yeah probably but this is brilliant. I love this. It's a very kind of, I suppose, like eye, eye level view of, you know, childhood, well, childhood and teenage kind of years, the awkwardness of it, the excitement of it. Rachel McAdams uh, plays the mother. Kathy Bates plays the grandmother. So it's about kind of like an interfaith marriage. 
um, the fact that she came from a strict Christian background and she married a Jewish man and then was disowned by her parents. Then the daughter as well is entering into puberty. So she's, you know, getting excited about boys, menstruating for the first time and all the rest of it. And it's done in a very, it's not patronising in any way, shape or form. It's very much from their perspective. Very, very funny. Very, very sweet. Roll one more, please. Finally, on Stephen's Day, I don't think you can go through the holidays without watching Audrey Hepburn breakfast at Tiffany's in it's on Christmas Eve. We are not going to mention Mickey Rourke, but more importantly, on Stephen's Day is My Fair Lady. So, of course, the 1964 classic where Henry Higgins, who is a professor of phonetics, bets his friend Colonel Pickering that he can teach a cockney flower girl, Eliza Doolittle, to speak like a duchess. And it, this is an Oscar award winning. It's so classic. It's had songs like I Could Have Danced All Nice, Wouldn't It Be Lovely. Rex Harrison is just curmudgeonly and brilliant. Audrey Hepburn is so charming. The cost Costumes are gorgeous. Just a sumptuous Christmas watch. Brian does not look particularly impressed. No, I've seen it loads of times. I've seen it loads of times. <laughs> all right. Thank you both of you for all your contributions throughout the year. Uh, Ro McDermott, Brian Lloyd, and we look forward to seeing you throughout uh, 2024 as well. The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Weekdays from 4.30. Today.